The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage the great neuroplastic brain for recovery. Thanks again for all of your support and joining with us as Pete and I talk about all things stroke and TBI recovery. Before we get into today's topic on subluxation, I want to recap last episode where we talked about mirror therapy. And in that conversation, we covered the history of mirror therapy, how mirror therapy works. We talked about what mirror therapy can help improve things such as movement, also sensation, hemi and attention and neglect, as well as pusher syndrome and complex regional pain syndrome. We went deep into evidence in support of using this intervention. And we talked a little bit about mirror therapy protocols and home programs. If you're wanting to get into mirror therapy a little bit more, check out the show notes. I've made a couple of programs that could benefit you and help you get started. And I also have some discounts for podcast listeners. And my problem with taping generally is it's kind of band-aid-y because as soon as you take it off, the arm could fall right back out. However, if you could get that to reduce pain and then have them do stuff, which then activates the sits muscles and the deltoid, and it brings that humerus back into where it needs to go. In the meantime, because they are doing stuff, they're driving cortical change, which reduces spasticity, which may indicate more movement. And now we get this upward spiral of recovery that could be quite helpful. So taping may be a temporary thing, but it might be a good temporary thing. Yes. Hey everybody, this is Pete. I need to butt in and do a really quick sort of addendum 
Actually, I think addendums are at the end of things. Maybe this is more like a preface or a forward or a precursor or a preamble or something. I don't know what it is, but I just wanted to jump in and tell you something that I forgot to discuss when I was with Deb. So it's a pretty core concept and it fits in well with the neuroplastic model that we've been discussing in this podcast. So here it is, and it has to do with subluxation. So here it is. If you're trying to get the muscles that support the shoulder to activate, there's no better way than to activate the hand. When the hand needs to go someplace, the shoulder has to go someplace. So if you engage the hand, you've engaged the shoulder. And if you engage the shoulder, you've engaged the muscles that reduce subluxation and possibly reduce pain in shoulders that are weakened by brain injury. The question becomes, how do you activate the hand? And one of the reasons this question comes up is because there's a lot of clinicians that believe the hand is necessarily going to be the last thing that comes back. But that's not always true. Clinicians often point to the old saying, recovery happens from proximal to distal. That is, that the muscles closer to the body come back first, and then they work their way down the limb to the more distant part of the limb. So the shoulder would come back before the muscles in the forearm, and they would come back before the muscles in the wrist and the hand. But this is a misrepresentation of the way things come back. It turns out that in the upper extremity, there's what's called bilateral innervation. That is that the proximal muscles of the upper extremity, that is the muscles closer to the body, are controlled by both sides of the brain. The proximal muscles have bilateral innervation. So when clinicians observe that recovery is proximal to distal, what they're really observing is the fact that the brain never ceded control of the proximal muscles in the first place. That is that the strong part of the brain, the intact part of the brain, never gave up the proximal muscles because there's bilateral innervation. And here's my point. If you get the hand involved, it may help resolve subluxation. If you get the shoulder muscles involved, they will activate and they will get stronger to support the shoulder. If they don't have hand movement, they may still have hand movement. If you have control over the finger flexors, you can use things like the Sabo Flex to reopen the hand, engage in something fun and functional, and use the hand to essentially motivate the shoulder. If they don't need something to help them open their hand, you can use our old friend Constraint Deuce Therapy. That may help. That is, if they have some grasp and release, have them use it even if they are subluxed, as long as, and this is where our safety concern comes into play, as long as the therapist is okay with it and the physician is okay with it and there's no pain and there's no reason not to activate a non-painful subluxed shoulder with an eye towards reducing subluxation. Engage the hands, reduce the subluxation. Thank you. Hi, Deb Baditstel. How are you? Hi, Pete Levine. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Um, the cicadas are receding. They oh, thing. Yeah, they're good. I got attacked big time outside of a UPS office the other day. Like I couldn't walk across the parking lot. It was very traumatic. I would be. Tra- I would just go stay in my house. They really are quite innocent, but uh, they often fly into the car and then they go. <laughs> <laughs> So my fr- my friend flew to Baltimore for an AOTA something that he's involved in, and the flight was delayed because of cicadas. Wow! Did they? Because I think I heard something about this. Did they get in the engines or something? Something like that. Yeah. And then he sent me a video of one laying on its back, like that. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes they flip back over, and sometimes they just die like that. Yeah, and I, yeah. I've heard of birds eating so many that they just 
die of being over full of cicadas. That's what I heard right? in our neighborhood. Anyway, so what are okay, we talking yeah. about today? So today we're going to talk about subluxation following stroke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a so, pretty big problem. It is a big problem. Yeah. I wonder if you have any statistics about that. I do. Yeah. In fact, I was going to quiz you and I know you hate being quizzed. So <laughs> I do. Like, this I really will go uh, really well. So, um, well, what percentage of stroke survivors do you think, at least immediately after the stroke or within the first few weeks, have subluxation? Because I was shocked mm. at the number. Well, if you give me a minute to pull up some of these articles, I'm sure. Take your time. Somebody's going to have this in here. Wait, I got to turn my volume down. What? Is it 17 to 81%? Like, that's a pretty vast range. That is a vast range. I mean, why don't we just say zero to 100? <laughs> You're funny today. <laughs> this is going to be a good one. I got 80%. Oh my gosh. It's in this It's in this other article that I have too. They must have be quoting the same person. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, okay. But I do have 80%. That's quite a high number. It is. It doesn't mean that eventually it doesn't resolve. So one of the things that's kind of confusing there was an article in 2017 from the Journal of Ultrasonography. And, you know, they this journal is just dedicated to the idea that ultrasound can measure anything very accurately. And they used ultrasound to figure out how much separation there was. And they found that every stroke survivor had a separation that was larger than it was with the control. You know, somewhere around 80% are having um, shoulder subluxation. But there could be another reason for that, and that's just general weakness with regard to the muscles that surround the shoulder. So as they weaken, even if they don't sublux, they still get pain. So we have a pretty high number. It's someplace up there. So I kind of think the message here is that we can go on the assumption that, you know, any person that has either bilateral or unilateral brain injury, there's going to be some separation of the humerus from the glenoid fascia. And so caution should be taken with that shoulder until it reveals itself as coming back and able to handle the stress of gravity and transfers and whatever, or that it goes into full subluxation. This article says that 73% occur in the acute stage. That's a high number. Wow. And you got to figure that's the period of time where not only are those muscles the weakest, spasticity hasn't even set in yet to help out. Mm -hmm. They're still in Brunstrom stage one. They're often flaccid. Even if they make a halfway decent recovery eventually, they're sometimes really flaccid in the early days after the brain injury. And that may be also the time when some of the stuff that caregivers do, and hopefully not clinicians, but caregivers do, can really put that shoulder at risk for even more subluxation and even more pain. So are you talking about something like holding onto that arm or grabbing someone underneath the arm when they're helping them transfer exactly surfaces. Yeah, exactly. So what are they supposed to do? Maybe this is a good place to start. Let's go right to the protection of the darn thing. Yeah. What are they supposed to do? Like, okay. So if you have a, if you have somebody who's subluxed and let's say they're back at home, mm-hmm. and they're four months post and you feel like they're going to fall and you know, it's, it's a natural reaction to have this appendage sticking out and to want to pull them towards upright Mm -hmm. or push them. What should they grab on instead of the shoulder or that arm, which is attached to the shoulder? 
Well, this can be tough because it can depend on your position relative to the person. Very true. You know, but um, I like I like to walk next to or stand next to the affected side. And then that way, if the person is going to be leaning into me, I can just kind of put my arm around them. Like I'm just going to put my arm around their waist and help them that way and not grab onto an arm. If somebody's wearing pants... I mean, you can kind of grab. You can give them a wedgie, aren't you? You can give them a wedgie. Not really what recommended. Um, But an emergency. Yeah. An emergency situation. Yes. Just it's better to grab the pants and give somebody a wedgie than it is to yank on that arm. Right. A a wedgie is embarrassing. It's it sucks for a couple of minutes and then it's over. But if you yank on that arm, all kinds of bad stuff can happen. I like the idea of grabbing them around the waist. Mm-hmm. So, but of course, as you suggest, you may not be in a really good position physically. You might have to grab it, whatever you can. And you got to make a calculation. Do mm-hmm. I want him to hit the ground or do I want him to grab this arm? Yeah. But that's the first rule. Do not transfer. If you have a planned transfer, don't grab that arm. What are some of the other don't do's? Well, I think it's important to know where that arm is at all times and position it properly. So if whether the person is sitting or lying in bed, position that arm so that it's in a natural position that it would normally be in if there wasn't an impaired movement piece there. And supporting under the shoulder when the person's lying down is a good, you know, put a pillow under there so that it's not behind them and so that they're not kind of rolling onto it. We never want somebody laying on that arm. And then not having the shoulder in internal rotation. That's the the position where the forearm is against the waist or the trunk. Um, Because if you do that, it's not a natural position for the shoulder. It really should be quite neutral. And one of the things that happens pretty quickly in this population, even if they don't have subluxations, are adhesions build up in the capsule of the joint. And that's really the number one cause of shoulder pain after a stroke or after any kind of brain injury where there's weakness, um, are these adhesions that build up because it's not being ranged, it's not being moved, and it's not being positioned correctly. And so that's where pillows can can help out. What about arm troughs? Where are you on arm troughs? So w- what are arm troughs? And like they go on wheelchairs, right? Typically, yeah, or- they just slide on the armrest of a wheelchair and they look like a trough. They're hard plastic and they have like this little scoopy thing like where the elbow would go. Like where the forearm rests. It's like a yeah. forearm. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I am not a proponent of them, generally speaking, because oftentimes the armrest of the wheelchair isn't where the person's arm would naturally rest. So it kind of pushes the, the shoulder up. You want to support it, but you don't want to shove it up? Yeah. Okay. Well, like, like it's hiked. And I know people can't see me, so I'm showing you. So like- Like you're you shrugging your shoulders. Yes. Thank you. Apparently, my words are not finding their way out properly. (laughs) (laughs) A little aphasia. That's all right. You know, those things that happen. And that's another thing is like, if you have them in an arm trough, they're not going to use that arm that much. It is true that sometimes people who are subluxed, and we'll go into all the anatomy there, but just since we're off on this tangent, people that are subluxed 
do not necessarily have a painful shoulder. So you might want to very well encourage them to use that extremity. And if you don't, it's use it or lose it. We know all the problems in the brain. And the thing is, if you can engage the hand, sometimes that resolves the subluxation because all the muscles are being used correctly. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Yep. We're Do back into mu- using it. That's right. Use it or lose it. Here's the here's the oh, muscles boy. that hold it. No. You know what? Let's <laughs> say that for the anatomy part. So we have positioning, we have arm troughs, we have using pillows. What do you think about pulleys? Because pulleys would really make sense if you wanted to range that shoulder. And we do think that adhesions in the capsule can really cause a lot of pain. And we do want to range it. What about pulleys? It seems like it would make sense. That's the way you pull down with the stronger arm and then the, the other arm is forced up. What could be bad about that? So we've talked about those pulleys before. There's not a lot of control involved in those pulleys that go over the door. The arm can be going in any multitude of directions and you can cause damage to the shoulder. And this is especially true if somebody doesn't have intact sensation. So if they don't really feel where their arm is in space, if somebody has some a little bit of impulsivity, if they have a little bit of neglect, all of these things can contribute to damage or further damage if if they're using pulleys. Yeah, I was going to mention that. A lot of them are insensate. They can't feel it. So now you're yanking on something, can't feel it. That can't be good. Pain mm-hmm. is there to tell us that there's tissue damage. And if you can't feel pain, boy, you probably shouldn't be yanking on it. Yeah, I agree. It's weird. I'm on a lot of stroke survivor Facebook groups. And there's often a person on there that will say, yeah, pulleys are great. Look at all these great things that I can do with pulleys. And and every bit of research says, do not do pulleys in any kind of hemiparetic situation, not just somebody who's subluxed. Yes. So can I go down a rabbit hole? You should. We haven't done that in a while. You know what? And this is really pathetic because it's the same damn rabbit hole I went down before. It has to do with evolution. And it has to do why <laughs> it is that the shoulder is just generally so vulnerable. So as I mentioned before, a couple of million years ago, we became terrestrial. We came out of the trees. We got on the ground. There's a lot of hypotheses why this is true. Maybe to see over the tall grass of, of Central Africa to see prey or to not be prey. Maybe it was that it was so hot and it gave us less surface area if we were standing up rather than quadrupeds. And then the latest hypothesis is that it gave us the ability to carry food. And you know, if you're a great ape and you're trying to carry some food, it's going to drop out of your hand as you use all four limbs to try to get around. But if you have two limbs that you're walking on and two limbs that you can carry food, you can carry an awful lot of food. And then about uh, 25,000 years ago, 26,000 years ago, we started weaving things. And then you carry a whole bunch of food back to your loved ones. And so it was great. It freed up our hands, not just to hunt and to make things, but it also gave us the ability to carry food and, and water. And that was really important. But the downside was that the weight-bearing limbs, the lower extremities, they used to be our hind limbs. They became our lower extremities and they were weight-bearing. And the hips got really huge and the head of the humerus got really big. 
And what it sat in, the ball and socket got really big. It's called the acetabulum. It looks like if you were to take a tennis ball and cut it in half, that's what the acetabulum looks like. It looks very much like a ball in a socket. Okay. Meanwhile, the upper extremities got much less of a ball and socket. So what they got was the head of the humerus on a very flat surface called the glenoid fascia. It's part of the uh, scapula. And that was the bad news. The good news was that much more than the hip, the shoulder can move and the shoulder needs to move because it needs to get the hand to where it needs to be. It's really a conveyor belt for the hand. It's all about the hand. The brain is obsessed with the hand. If you ever want to engage the brain in somebody who's had a stroke, even if you use the unaffected side, you will engage the brain if you engage the hands. So let me give you an example of the degrees of freedom with regard to the hip. Normal abduction in the hip is about 45 degrees. So if you were to do the splits, right? Get one foot as far out from the other one, one leg would abduct about 45 degrees. In the shoulder, it's about 150 degrees. So you've multiplied by three times the amount the shoulder can move. So it is very clearly a dislocation. A subluxation is a dislocation. Usually dislocation is more severe than a subluxation. It's whether it goes below the lip of the glenoid fascia. That's how they decide whether they want to call it a subluxation or dislocation. And the reason it happens is that the sits muscles, the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, uh, subscapularis, and teres minor. I did that out of order, but they're called the sits muscles. They get weak. Why do they get weak? Because the person had a stroke. They had a brain injury. It could happen bilaterally with a brain injury with a brain injury, um, but they have weakness in the muscles that actually hold it in there. And so it doesn't hold in there. I mean, you don't very often hear about a dislocated hip in a stroke survivor because they got big muscles and they're big ball and a big socket, but in the shoulder, there's not much to hold them in, just these tiny muscles and a couple of other structures that surround the joint. But the upshot is that the weight of the arm itself or a well-meaning caregiver or maybe a CNA at the skilled nursing facility, or somebody who's not too trained, they grab a hold of that shoulder and they help dislocate it. But sometimes just the weight of that shoulder will draw it down. Yeah. Arms are heavy. They are. I think we mentioned already that pain is not always involved, but it can be involved. And you said that adhesions are a reason for pain. And so the way to avoid adhesions is through mobility, but pulleys aren't good. So what should we do? Is passive range of motion something that we should be doing? I know you know the answer to this. So what you need to do is you need to find a very sort of, um, they're hard to find. Um, It's a discipline called occupational therapy. Hmm. I'm not really sure where they work, but Here's what wow, they, wait a minute. Just the name occupational therapy. That sounds like something wonderful. It, <laughs> okay. I want to put some music behind that too. You know, they make special mics for this stuff. They do. Well, I need that because I can't sing. So gentle ranging. Well, first of all, would you want to give advice to a caregiver without seeing the stroke survivor first over a podcast called Noggins and Neurons? No. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Definitely not. Maybe not. No. But I do think that occupational and physical therapists do some caregiver training and it should be included like how to properly perform passive range of motion because anybody can do it, but it's it's a good idea to be shown the right way to hold a limb 
and move through each joint through the motions that they go through. And, and, um, I like to, I like to show caregivers how to do it and then have them do it when I'm there. So they, I can help them know if they're doing it properly or not. And then they can get a level of confidence with somebody who's trained there with them. It's a little unnerving to move another person's limb. Yeah. And it's a lot more complicated than it seems. You think like, oh, I'll just pull the arm out and then I'll put it in front of them, behind them. There's scapulohumeral rhythm and there's all these notches they got to look out for. So you need somebody there that at least gives you the idea of how to do it at the beginning before you start it. The other thing is... Oh, can I just... So I'm glad that you brought that up because that is one of the things that occupational therapists or physical therapists look at when they first evaluate a person is to see if the scapula is moving with the arm. So the scapula rotates. It's a sort of external rotation. So the scapula are your shoulder blades and they they rotate up if you can imagine them coming apart what what the, what is that like a wing it yeah. doesn't really wing that's the wrong term because there is winging of the scapula yeah wing yeah we don't it's like yeah. an external rotation of the scapula as the humerus goes up and you go to abduct your arm the scapula moves with it and if it doesn't move right uh, you can tear some stuff up yeah and i i did interrupt you when you were going to say something so yeah well that that ship is sailed dead <laughs> We have no idea. By the way, so there's this great game. This is a tangent, all right? Okay. It's called the NBAC. It's a free game that you can download. You can have a desktop version. There's a there's a version for the phone. And you know that thing where like you forget, you wanted to say something, but you, you forgot what it was. And like, sometimes you go into the kitchen, you're like, why am I in the kitchen? I forgot what I came in here for. And you're supposed to go back to the original room. Mm-hmm. And then something in that room reminds you, oh, the candles, I need the candles. And they were, yeah, okay, got it. So there's this game, it's called the N back. And N just stands for any number. And it asks you, it's like a tic-tac-toe board. And you have to tell where the light lit two times ago. So you're constantly thinking back. I know. And it's weird because I've played this game and eventually you get really good at it, even though you don't even realize you're getting good at it. It's the only game I've ever seen that has clinical research that says it increases your IQ. You know that old saying, a sign of true intelligence is the ability to hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. That's what it works on. It's not that you can concentrate on two things at the same time because you can't. Your brain can only do one thing at a time. The thing is we shift really quickly within a millisecond. So the question is, can you use a game like that in order to remember what you said? Now, I need to play that game again because you said I was about to say something, but I forgot what I was going to say. Hey, Pete, you know what's great about podcasts? Well, a lot of things. You have a world of different options. You can fast forward through stuff you don't like, and it's all on your phone, so you can listen to it while you're driving or exercising or doing chores around the house. Well, that stuff is pretty cool, but that's not the most important thing. Wait, what do you think is the most important thing? That when you listen to the radio, all you get are ads. Even NPR shuts down for it seems like weeks to beg for money. Uh, uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. Uh Uh-oh, what? We're about to do the same thing. No. 
you know how much work we put into this, the research, the endless technology hoops that we have to jump through, the websites, the equipment, the editing. We just need a little help. Well, how can people help? Through Venmo. We have a Venmo account and any little bit will help. Our Venmo address is at Neurons because of course it is. At Neurons? How much do you think people should give? About a million dollars. Come on. Okay, like $500? Are you serious? $50? Let's just put it this way. Every little bit helps. If you want to support Noggins and Neurons' effort to simplify the best of neuroscience and rehab science for brain injury recovery, then $1 million to add neurons. And here's some good news. 20% of everything we get will go to the Brain Injury Association of America, which helps individuals who've had a brain injury, family caregivers, and the professionals who help create a better future through medical research and training. Treatment. Now, there's a couple of different ways that you can measure a subluxation. The classic way is you do finger breaths. I don't know. You put your fingers together and you measure how far the gap is. And you'll notice a real notch in the shoulder. It doesn't have that nice round shoulder that the deltoid provides, but rather the deltoid has now released it and there's this notch and it looks kind of nasty. And it's uh, where the head of the humerus has dropped out of the scapula. And you can measure that with your fingers. So the deltoid is a muscle that holds the the arm in place. It's one of the muscles that does. Yeah, it probably doesn't get enough credit because it's not part of the rotator cuff, but it is one of the ones that holds it up there. So you can measure by finger breaths. But the problem I have with that is if your subluxation is reducing over time, uh, the fingers are pretty thick. And so you're not getting a nuanced perspective on it. People have different size fingers. Oh, that's great notes, clinical notes. Deb yeah. does it one day. I do it next day. I got like short, fat fingers. She has these long piano player fingers. We got apples and oranges going on. That's no mm-hmm. good. But you could use a tape measure and just measure millimeters. Mm, there's an idea. Then there's calipers. Calipers are those two-point discrimination kinds of things, and you can widen them or shorten them. And I uh, went on Amazon. They're 10 bucks, digital ones. So you just open it oh up. Oh, my gosh. Now, you could take a small dot, maybe ask permission of the stroke survivor, but ask them very gently, can I put a little Sharpie markers here? Because then you can get the calipers and see if there's a nuance change in the resolution of the subluxation. It's a great idea. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. One of the things that we talked about before was flaccidity. And I did find a decent article that laid this bare. So- they based it on the Fugelmeyer score. We've talked about the Fugelmeyer, but basically lack of voluntary motor control within the first four weeks after onset, that is nothing going on, absolute flaccidity, and also no emergence of synergies. These are these mass patterns of movements that therapists hate, but I would argue is a really good indication that they're coming back is associated with extremely poor outcomes at six months. So Within that four-week range, if all you're seeing is flaccidity, that's when you got to start to protect the person. That's when you got to start to think about taping and these 
um, various kinds of things that hold the head of the humerus in there because you want to protect that limb as much as possible because otherwise they're not going to get any return. Now you got to protect. So protection can help with prevention of pain eventually. So I do want to talk a little bit about the various kinds of protections that you can provide in terms of braces. Let's not call them slings because slings have a, you know, you always think about the broken arm, the classic broken arm, the shoulder is internally rotated across the chest Mm -hmm. and then adhesions build up and that's, we've come a long way since then. So there are other options, but I did want to talk about some clinical trials that sort of conflict about whether or not these things help at all. So a couple of them come from Ghent University, which is one of the top 100 universities in the world. And you might think that that's not so great, but it's really good because there's a lot of universities in the world. My dad went to Brown University, and it's in terms of US News and World Report that ranks one of the people that rank the top universities in the world, Brown is around 70. So if you get in the top 100, that's pretty darn good. Ghent University, it's in Belgium. They got 44,000 pupils there. It's like a big, big school. And their conclusions, this was a randomized controlled trial on the immediate and long-term effects of arm slings on shoulder subluxation in stroke patients. And they looked at all of the research on it. So it was kind of a meta-analysis. The results of immediate correction varied. There was no definitive findings. Subluxation seemed to reduce in patients that did not wear a sling. Now, we'd have to go into the research and figure out what they're calling a sling. But the clinical conclusion was subluxation may not benefit from wearing an arm sling, which may itself inhibit active correction. We want active correction if they have the ability to activate those muscles that are supposed to pull the arm back into the shoulder socket, if you will. That's not really helpful for knowing what to do. (laughs) Yeah. But I think maybe there's other research as well. I know there's other research. However, there was another one. The last one was from 2017. There was an article from also from Ghent University in Belgium in 2020. It's actually last month they published it. And the conclusions were there was no strong evidence is available regarding a potential benefit of wearing an arm sling on balance and gait for stroke survivors. So that's the thing. We don't think about the upper extremity when we're talking about gait, but we should because it involves all kinds of arm swing and balance and trunk rotation, all these things that if you don't do them, they could lead to falls. In, I'm sorry, that was a 2020 article, that last one. Last month though, sorry, was another article. The effects of arm swing application on gait and balance in patients with post-stroke hemiplegia. It was from Taipei Medical University in Taiwan and their founding suggests, and again, it was a meta-analysis, it improves gait performance particularly walking speed in patients with post-stroke hemiplegia. So we have some conflicting stuff. This happens all the time. If you're looking to science to answer questions definitively, you're going to die trying. That's not what we do. We just keep asking questions and we try to get closer to something that we call truth or really a, a theory. 
what um what sort of shoulder braces do you like what what comes to the top of your list well just in terms of clinical experience that give more sling is one that people either like or they don't like it thinking about how easy or difficult they are to put on is a is a problem you know most of them are are difficult to put on and people can't put them on themselves or caregivers can't figure out how to put them on so that's yeah i've struggled with the give more by the way it's spelled g i v m o h r it's highly thought of among a lot of therapists we should probably point that out yes because it allows for the arm to do a relatively natural arm swing. And I've seen people with pretty dense hemiparesis. You put a suit jacket over that give more sling and uh, boy, they look like they're walking pretty normally at the, in the upper extremities at least. Yeah. You have to try them with, with people in order for people to know if it's going to work for them. That's true. And I've struggled donning those things mm-hmm. with people. There's a lot of attachments yeah. and stuff, you know, but it does work. And once it's on there, they can use it when they're sitting. It does provide some support, but it's really great for walking. Yes. So I found this one study, but it was done by the people that invented the sling. Oh, so boy. then I just wonder, like this, it wasn't done by them. It was funded by them. So then, you know, like to me, that's a conflict of interest. It can be. I, I um, will say that we've done a lot of clinical trials out of our lab, especially during the lean years when NIH wasn't funding stuff. You can keep yourselves pretty well separated from the company by basically reading them the riot act and saying, yes, we'll do our best to collect data, but you understand this is a blinded study. And if we're lucky, we can double blind it. So nobody's going to know. So if it fails, it's going to fail or succeed on its own. But anyway, so what did you find out? Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, it was a functional orthosis in shoulder joint subluxation to avoid post-hemiplegic shoulder hand syndrome. So they were specifically looking at that situation. So shoulder hand syndrome or complex regional pain syndrome, which we've spoken of before. We talked about it last episode. It's like this very, very painful syndrome that happens sometimes just because of the neurological aspect of the stroke, but sometimes because of the orthopedic aspect of the stroke. I mean, we're talking about pristine, intense pain. Yes. And it seems that not a lot of people are aware of of this problem. At least in the course of my career, I've come across people that I think, well, maybe this is what they have. And then there's an awful lot of education that has to come along with that in order to get somebody to refer to the physician to order the tests for that. Uh-huh. There is a, um, a measurement tool that they used in this article. It's, some kind, it's a classification tool, and there are different criteria that they look for, and then they score them. So in terms of sensory, they look for pain or hyperalgesia, high pain. Um, they look for the edema that we talked about. They consider that an autonomic problem, painless passive range of motion. So they look at moving the person in abduction as well as external rotation and then muscle strength and they score them. That's how they did it for the study. They use that tool. What was the name of the tool? It's, it's definition of classifications, components of the shoulder hand syndrome score and description of muscle strength. It's according to Bross, B-R-A-U-S at L. And then it's recommended by the Medical Research Council. Are you finding it right now? I'm looking for it. And okay. We can edit awesome. this, but yeah. let's see. So while you're looking for it, I just, I'll just tell you that the 
conclusions of this study show that the orthosis that they looked at was able to reduce and prevent the development of clinical symptoms of shoulder hand syndrome. And then they looked at the timing and the duration of application of the orthosis, as well as combining it with other therapeutic measures need to be investigated in future trials. Of course, that's what we talked about in the research episode where they always say what to look at next. It's the neurolux shoulder joint functional orthosis. And it, it goes across the body. It looks like it goes on pretty easily. I've never used this one with any, any person that I've worked with. And how do you spell that, please? That is neuro, N-E-U-R-O-Lux, L-U-X. And this study, we'll put in the show notes, they have some x-rays that they took of the person when they're wearing the orthosis. Yeah, I see that. So typically when you think like the give more is a good example and a sling is a good example. It's dominated by that side of the body. Whereas the one that you're talking about actually goes across the chest mm-hmm. and hooks under the underarm of the opposite side arm there by pulling the arm towards the body, the affected side arm. Mm-hmm. But it also it has... Looks, it looks like it pulls it up a little bit too. And just, it pulls it up, right. Um, now, I should point out that it's about $245. Okay. So that sounds a little expensive at first, the first time you hear it. But when you think about the the cost, the cost of pain on your life is you can't put a monetary value on that. And some people suffer for a long time. And if, if you can prevent pain from happening for $245, I think it's money well spent. It's probably worth it. Yeah. There was another one that a lot of therapists like. It is somewhat less expensive, about $145. It's called the Omotrain. So it's O-M-O-T-R-A-I-N, one word, Omotrain. And it is very soft and it is considered a shoulder brace. I don't know how they're delineating orthotic versus brace, but there you go. And it does sort of like the one that you were talking about where it involves the entire body. There's a strap around the waist. Mm-hmm. There's one that goes hooks around the other, um, the other side of the body. And these things are there to support the shoulder in a more neutral position, but they can, as you pointed out, be hard to don and doff or put on mm-hmm. and take off. This one has a lot of straps. The Omo train? Yes. There's other ones that are just called hemi cuffs, and you can buy those for quite inexpensive on Amazon. I don't know how effective they are. You probably get what you pay for. Now, the question is, would insurance be willing to help out with some of that? And I bet if they saw that you're in extreme pain and or that shoulder is moving every day out of that socket, and maybe that's where therapists can come in and they can get one of those calipers and measure things and say, things are getting worse with this guy. We need to get something on there to protect him. Yeah. So you're talking about documentation. Exactly. Yeah. The one that a lot of therapists talk about, and you're going to know it immediately, it reminds me a lot of the one that you just mentioned called the Neurolux. It looks a lot like it, the Autobach. Have you heard of that one? It sounds familiar, but I've never used it. How do, I can't even, how do you spell that? O-T-T-O-B-O-C-K, one word, oh, yeah, Autobach. Yeah. 
I have heard of and it. And they call it the Omo Norexa. I don't know how they all have, all these companies have very similar names with this. It must be something that we don't understand. It's interesting because if you're going to ask these people to don it, they have to be able to don it with one hand if they want to do it themselves. Yeah. And they have this model with the Autobach. She must have been a dancer or something because she's clearly hemiparetic. But that less affected limb, she can reach between her scapula to attach it. I mean, I'm like, I couldn't hmm. even get near there. I'm lucky if I can scratch my kidneys back there. So yeah, that's something to think about is what's easier to don? What's easier to get off? What's going to help you more? What's going to reduce subluxation? What's going to reduce pain? What's going to help walking? You got like a million things that you need to go over with your therapist before you buy one of these things. Yes. This looks like you could put this on by yourself. There's a, a YouTube video. For the Autobach? Mm-hmm. The Omo Nerexa Plus. Yeah. Is it a very nice, very coordinated young lady? Is she wearing a green shirt? Yep. That's yeah. that's her. I mean, she's she can get back between the scapula back there. It's I was pretty shocked at that. Well, that's a tough move for some people. Yeah, it's a little bit of a tough move. Yeah. Pete, we asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and you know, just, just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end and whether or not people donate, are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that? That's true. Um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address? I do. It's at Neurons. At Neurons. That's pretty simple. It is. And it's in our title. So if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this and we want to keep it going. And, uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. And yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the... The Brain Injury Association of America? That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment. It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it. Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at Neurons. Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more and the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us that's true yeah okay great thanks guys thanks
One of the companies I want to talk about is Bioness. And you don't really think about Bioness in terms of eStim, except for functional eStim, the L300 for dorsiflexion or the H200 to open your hand. Kathy Spencer, super survivor Kathy Spencer was a spokesperson for, for Bioness. But they make a, another stimulator that provides pain reduction in people with shoulder pain. Hmm. And it's called the Bioness Stim Router. And it is surgically implanted fine wire electrodes right against the nerve that is causing the pain. And you know how with e-stim, if you put surface electrodes on, you got to turn up the e-stim. And sometimes it can be really a noxious stimuli to get the movement that you want or yes. to get the pain reduction that you want. I think you mentioned it last episode when we were talking about mirror therapy, the pain gate theory. Oh. And so you want the e-stim to compete with the pain that's naturally happening. But when you put it in dwelling, all of a sudden, it doesn't have to go through all that soft tissue. And so you can turn up the e-stim so little that the person doesn't even feel it, but it's doing its job. That's why they have this very fine wired indwelling electrode. Then they have a cap that goes over it and you just wear it forever if you want to. And it's controlled via Bluetooth from the outside. And the person can turn the e-stim up or down depending on whether they're having pain. And what I've noticed, and you mentioned this uh, last episode is as well, pain is all in your brain. Mm -hmm. So what happens is as it's reduced at the point of contact where that shoulder pain is, it starts to shrink in the brain. Neuroplastically, that portion of the brain dedicated to the pain starts to shrink. And when it does, sometimes you get less and less e-stim. And people talk about, well, I used it for a while and it's we still have it implanted, but I don't use it anymore because I don't, man, occasionally I turn it on. And that's what you want. You want the representation of the pain in the brain to so reduce that you're not feeling it anymore. So do you know how much something like this costs? I do not. Mm. And if it's Bioness, it, it probably is not cheap. But I'm thinking because it'll keep you off of opioids, managed care might be willing to do it if your doctor steps up to the plate. It's called the Bioness Stim Router. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So I found this one article, it, this is an article written by occupational therapist, but it talks about effective interventions for subluxation and electrical stimulation that you were talking about, including the neuromuscular electrical stimulation, NMES, and functional e-stim, stretching, taping, and slings or orthoses. Okay, NMES so, means that there's muscle contraction FES, functional electrical stimulation, means that you're going to have them go into flexion or do some movement at the joint. Um, so it's not just muscle contraction. Then there's one below that, TENS, which is just a pain reduction because you're getting this noxious stimuli. I found a pretty cool study that incorporates brain-computer interface-controlled functional e-stim. This is such a cool article because it involves... Action observation. The American Occupational Therapy Association, every once in a while, they do these critically appraised papers, and they did it on the article. They did one. NeuroSky is the name of the company where they got the sensors from. And so they use these action observational programs during the, the brain controlled interface with functional e stim. 
intervention to facilitate patients' concentration on a variety of observed shoulder movements. The observation of shoulder movements enabled patients to use motor imagery, a widely used intervention in occupational therapy, to actively engage in the range of motion tasks because motor imagery was the key difference between that intervention and the control group, which was controlled functional e-stim. Um, they decided that motor imagery improved motor function and reduced pain in those individuals. Wow. Action Isn't observation it? yeah, and imagery mm -hmm. and movement. They all do similar things in the brain. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That is very cool. Can I talk just a little bit more about Easton? Yes, please. So I got a an ace in the hole when it comes to Easton. It's a guy that's been around for a very long time. I met him years ago. His name is Gadalon. Great name, Gadalon. He's a PT PhD. He's a professor emeritus at University of Maryland School of Medicine. And this is going to make more sense to therapists than to anybody else. But if you're going to Easton to reduce subluxation, that is, you're going to get muscle contraction to bring the head of the humerus into the glenoid fascia. It used to be that therapists would put one of the electrodes on the deltoid and the other on the supraspinatus. So the supraspinatus is um, near the neck at the top of the shoulder, and the deltoid is the round part of the shoulder. But he pointed out, and I asked him specifically about this, the placement over the supraspinatus is a problem because the supraspinatus is covered by the upper trapezius. So it's hard to get to. You're not going to be able to get to it no matter how you try. A better choice is the deltoid and the infraspinatus. And I'm going to put an article in the show notes that shows you four different pictures of where it used to be and where it should be now. It's basically on the posterior part of the deltoid. And then the terrace minor is just under the armpit. Another thing that a lot of therapists talk about is taping. Can we just go back to the east end? Yes, the east end. What you were, so where are we put? You just mentioned teres minor and infraspinatus. Are we putting electrodes there? I'm confused. So you want to stay away from the supraspinatus. Okay. And you want to hit the infraspinatus. Okay. One is near the trap. The other is about under the armpit. Okay. However, the, the posterior deltoid is the same. That's remade the same. It's okay. the posterior deltoid and the infraspinatus. Now, the terrace minor and the infraspinatus are very close to each other. So you're going to hit both of them with a relatively small electrode. Okay. Thank but you. really, if you're interested in this stuff, please go to the show notes because I got three really good pictures. Okay. Yeah, that will be helpful for people. Yeah, who needs to figure out the, where the infraspinatus is? I don't know if I could figure that out, but if you see a picture of it, you know where to put the electrodes. Mm -hmm. Cool. So taping, this is this idea of either kinesio taping or just athletic taping. And there was one that OTs speak very highly of. It's called the California Tri-Pull Taping Method. And it's got five strips of tape and there's a certain pull that you gotta do. This is not with kinesio tape. Kinesio tape actually has some stretch and the idea is you would pull it back in. This is just straight up athletic tape. So I will put the California Tri-Pull Taping Method and how to do it, a video from the professor who came up with it. Mm -hmm. You know, these are not particularly evidence-based 
And my problem with taping generally is it's kind of band-aid-y because as soon as you take it off, the arm could fall right back out. However, if you could get that to reduce pain and then have them do stuff, which Mm -hmm. then activates the sits muscles and the deltoid, and it brings that humerus back into where it needs to go. In the meantime, because they are doing stuff, they're driving cortical change, which reduces spasticity, which may indicate more movement. And now we get this upward spiral of recovery that could be quite helpful. So taping may be a temporary thing, but it might be a good temporary thing. Yes. What's the difference between that taping and this um, other article I found where they talked about strapping? I was like, what is this going to be? And it's tape. And they used Fixamol stretch tape and Luco tape. And those are just athletic tapes. Right. The Luco tape is, is athletic tape. Yeah. It's so- quite strong. The the one thing that you have to do is you have to put something, there's another sort of very gentle tape that you put underneath it because when you pull it off the the, um, skin, it can be tough. I I played four years of high school football and we shaved our ankles because we wanted to tape our ankles and the tape would be like really hard to get off. And so you didn't want the the hair to be pulled off. And Mm -hmm. then we had this other stuff, this foam stuff that we could put underneath it, but that didn't happen until 1978. By then I had played for a couple of years and I had ankles. Good. Yeah. Anyway, enough of my problems. Yeah. You want definitely want to protect the skin when you put this very tough tape on there. Yeah. And And it's this article talks about the same thing, reducing pain. That's a good enough reason to do it. I think it's a very good reason to do things. Pain wears people down. It does. It keeps them from moving. Mm -hmm. It does. It leads to learn non-use. It does. Makes you cranky. It does. I had a ball. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. I did too. Okay, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.